good morning. If you're in our home on, on any given night, you're likely to, to find either Carrie or myself reading Go Dog Go with, with, with our oldest, no, with our youngest. And, um, and uh, it's really, it's a, it's a book that I've read with each of our kids, and it wasn't probably the first several kids were ever put together what's actually going on in that book. They were actually learning about prepositions, learning about colors and things like that. And so as you read, you know, one dog going in, two dogs going out, or, or three dogs at a party, on a boat, in the water, at night. You know, the, these different almost senseless pages are actually really helping learn something that really matters. I mean, it's very helpful and important for us to, to understand prepositions. And, and so Go Dog Go has accomplished that in our, in our home. So it served as sermon prep for me last night to be reading that. And uh, actually, we've, we've been talking in a similar vein in, in the Sunday school class as we've been studying Leviticus. There has been a tension that has been given to, you know, where, where are we? Is, is Moses in? Is Moses out? Has Moses come out? And did Moses and Aaron go in and come out? You know, these are the type of realities that, that we've been seeing in Leviticus as we've seen that, that God dwells in the tabernacle. And, and as we begin the book of Leviticus, we, we've explored that, that Moses was not able to go in uh, at the end of Exodus. And so there you have him at the beginning of Leviticus outside the tent as God is speaking to Moses. And then there's this very monumental event that took place that we studied two weeks back in Sunday school where Moses and Aaron, they do go in doing everything that God had prescribed in regards to the sacrifices that they were to perform and their priestly roles and how they were to perform those sacrifices. And so then they do go in to the tent and God is pleased, God is glorified, God is worshipped amongst the people as Moses and Aaron come out of the tent. And so then last week, and it, I, I heard it came up again this morning in Sunday school as well, there's a very significant event that then takes place in chapter 10 of Leviticus. After this pattern that everyone has gotten used to of the priests doing everything that God has commanded, you have these two priests, Nadab and Abihu, who go in, they draw near, and I want you to pay attention to these words because we're going to see this in Hebrews today. Our time will be in Hebrews, and very much Hebrews helps us in our study of Leviticus. But these two priests, they confidently draw near. They, they go in, but they don't come out because in going in, in a very disobedient, unauthorized way, they are killed. And there's this presumptive worship that takes place in Leviticus 10. They have confidence, and they draw near, but they do it in a very disobedient way, and so they are killed for it. And there's so many benefits from even that event in Leviticus 10 and throughout the, the book to see the holiness of God on display, to see the benefits, the need of uh, access to God, the, the benefits of being able to draw near to God, uh, the weighty privilege of that access. All of this is going on in Leviticus. And so I guess I'm in some way giving a little bit of a promotion for that Sunday school class. I hope you'll, you'll be here. Uh, we're almost halfway through already, but I know that each individual that's been involved in teaching has, has learned a lot in their time in Leviticus. We've all grown in our appreciation for the book, and I pray that that's what's taking place for, for our group as a whole as we study Leviticus. Because all of these sacrifices that are listed in detail and the specificity of these sacrifices all, all make us very mindful of the consequences of sin, but they point us to uh, how grateful we are for, for the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice that we were reading about in Hebrews 10. We're also mindful of the, the priests and their, their re representation of the people uh, um, um, before God. And then those, those priestly roles in Leviticus draw us to, to greater admiration and love for and affection for Christ who is our great high priest. 
And so these realities have been coming out during our time in Leviticus. So when we're thinking rightly in, in that early book uh, of the Old Testament, when we're thinking rightly, um, Leviticus draws us to delight in the person and work of Christ. And so that is very much going to be the theme of what we'll see in Hebrews today, um, a delight in the person and work of Christ. Delight in who he is, delight in what he has done, and to delight in how that benefits us. It glorifies God, and it benefits God's people to, to explore, to think carefully on, and to live in light of the person and work of Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to jump right in towards um, uh, the end of Hebrews. I mean, more than halfway through in Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 10. Our scripture reading this morning was the first half of that chapter, uh, verses 1 through 18. But the sermon this morning, we are going to be looking carefully at verses 19 and following. We really will focus in on 19 through 23. I think the very end of our time this morning, we'll, we'll look at what is likely the most familiar to you uh, um, the most familiar part of Hebrews 10 is, is that, that call to gather in verses 24 and 25. Um, let us consider how to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. So we'll look at verses 24 and 25 at the end. But really, uh, I think the focus of our time is going to be thinking carefully about verses 19 through 23. But there's a little bit of a sleight of hand going on from me in saying that. Because you'll notice how verse 19 begins. It says, therefore. And so you know what, what pastors do when they see the word therefore. They, they use that as, you know, license to look at a lot more than just that verse. We're going to go back and look at what precedes verse 19 because we need to. If we're going to understand 19, if we're going to understand what, what this author is writing in verses 19 and following, we need to know what took place prior, and that therefore points us to that. And so let me just read verses 19 through 25, and then we will walk, walk through this together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, verse 19 begins with therefore. Uh, this, again, you know, this is ten and a half chapters into what I think is probably, you know, this sermon a recorded sermon here, and so this immediate context right before the, this call to uh, draw near is verse 18. So right before verse 19, you just saw that we are talking about forgiveness. And if you move back, you'll remember what Ben was reading in, in verse 14, that this forgiveness came through one single offering. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then again, uh, verse 17b, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. So it's on the basis of this reality of forgiveness. For those who are in Christ, these brothers, uh, brethren, believers, they have every reason to draw near because their sins have been forgiven. 
And so that's what you see as you begin here in verse 19. But if you think even more broadly, that, that near context is, is verses 14 through 18. But if you step back and even look at Hebrews as a whole, that also helps us to understand what this call is about in verse 19. Because the book has been consumed with, devoted to, speaking to the supremacy of Christ. So as you begin at the, the beginning of the letter and you walk through Hebrews, you see that Jesus is greater. And so early on, uh, he's superior to the angels. Chapter 3, he's superior to Moses. As you continue, he's superior to, the, the, uh, to Aaron, to the high priests. He's superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. He's, uh, he's greater. Jesus is greater. And so because Jesus is greater, if you are in Christ, draw near. Uh, that's, that's what this call is going to be that, that we look at. We are to draw near to God. And verse 22 tells us even this again. We are to draw near. Uh, 19, says, 19 says, enter the holy places. Verse 22 says, let us draw near. So back to 19, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we are to, we are to draw near. And so I'm going to look at two questions, basically. As we walk through these verses, let's, let's ask two questions and allow Hebrews to answer these two questions. The questions we're going to ask first, we'll look at this, is how can we draw near? I mean, we just saw an example of, you know, you want to do this rightly, because if you draw near, as, as Nadab and Abihu did, but you do it um, in the wrong way, uh, it doesn't end well. It ends, and it doesn't end well. So we want to ask ourselves this question. How can we draw near? If this is the call, how can we? And the second question that we want to answer then, which is also uh, provided here in the text, is how should we? How can we draw near? How should we draw near? So, verse 19 Let's read it and then begin to answer this question. How indeed can we draw near to God? If verse 19 says to enter into the holy places, how is it that we are to do that? So, verse 19. Brother, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. How can we draw near? It's by the blood of of Jesus. Access to God is because of the work of Christ. Right standing with God is because of what Christ has done. It's in light of this all-sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, Jesus, our Savior, that we are able to draw near to God. His sacrifice, indeed, paid for all our sins. And so the call is, draw near Enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Uh, you may not even have to turn the page, but, but go back to chapter 9. Look at, look at verse 14. Hebrews 9, 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we're seeing that the blood of Christ has, has uh, purified us of our sins. It has forgiven us of our sins, cleansed us of our sins. Uh, we've looked at it already in the scripture reading and referenced it again, but in chapter 10, this blood of Jesus is mentioned several times as well. Verse 12 of chapter 10 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So you're seeing in this sacrifice, it it was complete. It's done. Once for all, it happened. It accomplished all that um, was to be accomplished. He for, it forgives sins. Verse 14 says, For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's perfected for all time. That's how we're able to draw near. The sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the question, how can I draw near? It's by the blood of Jesus. Continue then into verse 20. 
enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This new and living way uh, is, is a statement that's very helpful for us to think about the work of Christ. The word new, I mean, that this is the only place in the New Testament where this particular word translated new is here. In other places outside of the scriptures, this word is actually used to refer to like um, newly uh, sacrificed, like uh, newly um, slaughtered, freshly slaughtered. So what an appropriate word to think here about the person work of Christ. This new and living way is this freshly slaughtered and living way. This is Jesus, uh, his death is the living way. And it's almost, it's hard to put those two together, isn't it? To think that, that death is the living way. We don't always just read Go, Dog, Go in our house. In fact, like just a few days ago, there was this children's biography about John Owen that, that we were talking about with our kids. And the title of one of John Owen's book is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And there was just some pretty helpful conversation that went on where we were all just recognizing there's really a lot there in that title. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to learn just from the title. The death, <clears throat> the death of death in the death of Christ. That's really Hebrews 10, 20, when we're seeing this new and living way. The death of Christ has put to death death. And so this new and living way is this freshly slaughtered, uh, and living way. And so as this living way is, is stated here in Hebrews, it certainly gives testimony to Christ's words about himself. He would say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so Jesus indeed is this new and living way. And that he, this new and living way, what it opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Well, where does your mind go when you read this word curtain? The blood of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, it paid for our sins. It removed this barrier between God and man. And we read here, there was this, the curtain that was his flesh. It opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. I think in all of our minds, we probably go to the events of, of the crucifixion. So in fact, in fact, let's do that. Everybody turn to Matthew chapter 27. Just remind ourselves of, of just what took place after Christ suffered, bled, and died in our place. <clears throat> and we read in Matthew 27 something that really happened and what really happened uh, also really taught something as well. So Matthew 27 Verse 51. This is after Jesus cries out with a loud voice. He yields up his spirit in verse 50. Jesus has died on the cross in our place. And then you read in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And so this supernatural event that you see there in Matthew 27, this, this, this event in history, this took place and it happened in a very supernatural way from top to bottom is how this curtain was torn in two. It signified that Christ's substitutionary death removed this barrier. It removed the separation that existed between God and man. That's what Christ's work has accomplished. It secured eternal redemption for all who would believe. We read that in Hebrews. And so that's what, that's what we're seeing here. The, how can we draw near, back to Hebrews 10, how can we draw near? We draw near by the blood of Jesus because Christ's death has removed the barrier between God and man. So if you follow the flow throughout the whole letter of Hebrews, that this author has established that Christ's sacrifice was superior to any other sacrifice that took place in the Old Testament. It was once for all. I mean, think about the many sacrifices daily, 
daily, daily, of all these sacrifices. But Christ's sacrifice, it was once for all. And it brought about forgiveness of sins. If you think of the sacrifices in the Old Testament that help us to remember sin, we're mindful of sin, Christ's sacrifice forgave sin. So it was once for all. It brought about forgiveness. And it cleansed our conscience. It brought about cleansing. Our sins are forgiven. Our conscience conscience has been cleared. It has been cleansed. And through Christ's sacrifice, Hebrews will tell us, we are now able to rightly worship him. Because of what Christ has done, we can approach God rightly. We can worship God. We have access to God. Listen to this this verse from a hymn. It's by John Newton. Um, Christ has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. So let us love and sing and wonder by John Newton. And he's saying he's washed us with his blood. He has brought us near to God. He has brought us nigh to God. So how can we draw near? By this greater sacrifice. Know this. Don't, don't think you can approach God in any other way apart from Christ uh, in light of your Um, abilities, in light of your heritage, in light of your effort. No, the only way we can draw near to God is by the blood of Christ. And that's not the only basis for answering this question. How can we draw near? By the blood of Christ. Additionally, we see that we can draw near because we have this greater sacrifice and we have a great high priest. So continue in the text, Hebrews 10. Following after that statement about the sacrifice, we see the, the work of Christ and the sacrifice. We, we also are mindful of the, the ministry and work of Christ as we, as we see this statement about him being our great high priest. So verse 20 ended by the new and living way that is opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Verse 21 then says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. How can we draw near? By this great sacrifice and by this great priest. Turn back to chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. Because these are themes in the book, they're all throughout the letter. We we see this statement about Christ as our high priest This is not new. This is a reminder. So chapter 4, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And really the argument is, since we have this great high priest, let's hold fast this confession. That's, That's the statement here. Let us hold fast our confession since we have a great high priest. So indeed, believers, you have this great high priest and his name is Jesus. And in order for Jesus to be our great high priest, he has to be made like us in every way. And so for Christ to be our faithful high priest, we're recognizing he was truly God and truly man. He was made like us in every respect. So back to Leviticus. When, when you think of what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, um, we've explored the role of the high priest. And next week, is, we're in the Day of Atonement, and we, and we think through the, the ministry of the high priest. We, we see the high priest called by God, appointed by men, and he offers sacrifices on behalf of our sins. And in, in the situation with the great high priest in Leviticus, he's got to offer sacrifices for his own sin first and then for the sins of the people. But for Jesus, as our great high priest, uh, he's not beset with weakness like Aaron. So he doesn't have to offer up a sacrifice for himself and then a sacrifice for the people. Jesus is our great high priest, greater because he's not beset with weakness. Jesus is our great high priest because he didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins, because Jesus knew no sin. 
And so Hebrews 10 is saying you have this greater sacrifice, you have this great high priest, so enter into the holy places because of um, what Christ has accomplished for your good, for God's glory. So he's great. We don't have to do these daily sacrifices. He did it once for all. He offered it up. So this is our position. He indeed is our great high priest. And he's our great high priest. Uh, he's over the house of God, verse 21 tells us. Look back there, verse 21. The great priest over the house of God. What do you think we're talking about when you read the house of God? What is that in reference to? Well, in Hebrews, back in chapter 3, the author has established that the household of God, this house of God, is in reference to believers. Believers are the house of God. And so believers have this great high priest. It is, it is our um, identity. We are in Christ. He is our great high priest as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We draw near because of Christ. I mean, praise God for this. And don't, don't lose sight of, of how delightful this is as you just move through the argument in verses 19 and 20 and then into 21. We have this great high priest. He is our great high priest. And so we can draw near to God. That's the first question that we had asked ourselves of the text. How can we? Well, sacrifice, priest. Now let's move on to this second question, and we'll kind of circle back to, to the beginning of this section and, and try and answer then, we can, so how should we? If we can draw near, how should we draw near? So we're going to be, begin back in verse 19, Hebrews 10, 19. You saw it already, but we haven't made mention of it yet. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we should enter with confidence. Confidence here is a godly virtue. I don't know that we always associate confidence with, with godliness, uh, but this is not the confidence that, that we might think of when we, when we think of the prideful self-confidence that's so often on display even you know, in our own lives, but in, throughout the world, just self-confidence. Uh, this confidence is actually characterized uh, by by an inward gaze, misguided uh, self-righteousness, self-reliance. That's not the kind of confidence we're talking about here. When Hebrews says to enter in with confidence, uh, the believer's confidence lies in someone else. Our confidence is in Christ, not in ourselves. And so that's, that's what we're, we're told here. Uh, in fact, I just want to point out uh, another passage we go to just to think about self-confidence and the offense that that is to God. Turn to, turn to Luke chapter 18. This is a familiar event here that we read about in the, in the teaching of Christ. Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus is teaching a parable. This was, I've been talking to the youth about parables here the last few weeks, and, and there, there's this point in the ministry of, of Christ where, where he begins to teach in parables to reveal truth to those who have ears to hear and to conceal truth from those who have rejected Christ. And so there's very much wisdom on display in Jesus' teaching in parables. And so here he teaches a parable that is very familiar to, to many of us, and it shows us the folly of self-confidence. It shows us the uh, gospel-denying realities of someone who um, is resting in their own ability, the, the self-confidence that is on display by this individual in the parable. So, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So you're already given the motivation here why Jesus teaches this parable. He's teaching it because there's some who are trusting in themselves. And in that self-confidence, they viewed themselves as righteous. And in thinking so highly of themselves, they looked down 
on everyone else. They were self-confident, they were self-righteous, and they looked out and, and felt like others, they looked at others with contempt, is what we're told here in the passage. So here's the parable that Jesus gives about um, self-righteousness. <clears throat> Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So if you're thinking of the call here in verse 21 to draw near with confidence, obviously we are not talking about this Pharisee's self-confidence. Uh, the, look at even how it ends. Uh, the the one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. You have this self-righteous Pharisee who thinks he is right with God and he's thankful that he's not like this other guy and he thinks highly of himself and he's very confident but very misguided. Uh, and then you have this other individual very aware, this tax collector very aware that he is a sinner and that his sin needs to be dealt with and he pleads with God to have mercy on him, a sinner. So he has humbled himself. The Pharisee has exalted himself. And Jesus is saying, I will humble the one who exalts himself. I will exalt the one who humbles himself. And so back in, in Hebrews 10, when it says draw near uh, with confidence, it's not a confidence in ourselves. It's not a confidence in our own abilities. It is a confidence in what Christ has accomplished. It's back to those two points that were already made. It's a confidence in the great sacrifice and a confidence in the great high priest. So believers enter in with confidence. This has been said earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16, almost the exact same language about how to draw near to God, to draw near with confidence in light of what Christ has done. Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I referred to this even as we prayed. I think sometimes we might just even lose sight of the fact that to approach God in prayer is not just some entitled reality for, for all. Um, if, if you are outside of Christ, if you're an enemy of God, you have no basis to approach him in prayer unless your prayer is what you just read in that, that parable, a prayer of, of repentance, pleading with God to show mercy to you on your sin. Because in Hebrews 4, we're saying we have we have confidence to enter in, to, um, to draw near to God, to the throne of grace, to pray because of Christ. Even in Proverbs, actually, Proverbs 28 tells us that, that those who, who draw near to God in prayer that are, that are outside of God's favor, those who have turned their ear from hearing the law, their prayers are actually an abomination to God. That's what Proverbs 28 says. So we can't just approach God in prayer in our own effort. The only basis for approaching God is if you are in Christ. Christ is the new and living way. It's in Christ alone that we have access to God. And so we can boldly approach him if we're in Christ. So this, con this confidence, this access is not just in prayer, but it's certainly in worship as well. This is how we're to draw near to God in prayer. This is how we're to draw near to God in all of worship. Uh, skip ahead to, towards the end of Hebrews. Go to chapter, go to chapter 12. <clears throat> chapter 12, verse, verse 28. It says, Therefore, 
Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So you, you're recognizing that so much has been said prior to this verse that the, the uh, acceptable worship that is being referred to in chapter 12 is in reference to everything that's been said about the supremacy of Christ and those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you can draw near to God. You can offer up acceptable worship in reverence and awe. I mean, God is a consuming fire, but you can approach this consuming fire with confidence if you're approaching God in Christ, if we're trusting in Christ alone. So we approach with confidence. How can you draw near? By the sacrifice, by the priest, uh, that is Jesus. How should we draw near? We should draw near with confidence, and we should draw near with assurance. We'll also see that as we, as we finish out this section in, in chapter 10. We draw near, verse 22 tells us, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. At this point, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce uh, makes a comment in his commentary on this verse that it, it no longer is the privilege of access to him carefully fenced by conditions like those laid out in Leviticus. You know, here with Christ as our great high priest, we can draw near with full assurance because of his work. We draw near with confidence. We draw near with assurance. We sing Charles Wesley often, and you think of a very familiar hymn where we say, bold I approach the eternal throne, and can it be. You know, we, we approach God with boldness and assurance because of Christ. We'll look more carefully at verse 22, though. Not only does it say that we approach with assurance, but we see that we draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart, that is a sincere heart. Maybe that's even what your translation says. A genuine heart. That's how we draw near to God, is with uh, uh, with this internal reality that we have an affection for God, a love for God. And that's, that's something that God places in us. Do you have a love for God? Do you have a heart that truly loves God? Just as much as we looked earlier at, at the Pharisees as this anti-example, this, this bad example of, of those who, who are self-righteous, we can also look in the Gospels at the Pharisees at this example of, of what, uh, what it is to, to um, not have a heart after God. In fact, uh, turn to Matthew 15. I know that this came up in Sunday school this morning, um, but I'm going to look at the, the first half of this event in Matthew 15 just to, to see what it is to have a heart after God. Matthew 15 if we're to have a sincere heart, the very opposite of a sincere heart, the very opposite of sincerity is hypocrisy. And you see, you see hypocrisy here um, in this passage. I'll jump right in with Jesus' words in, in verse 7. Jesus says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is a very powerful section because ironically what has taken place prior to Jesus' words is that the Pharisees had taken issue with the disciples. They were offended at the disciples and what they were offended by was that they do not wash their hands when they eat. And so the tradition of the elders here that you're reading about in Matthew 15 was to apply the requirements that were given to the priests. They applied these requirements upon all of Israel. And so this was some effort, man-made effort, tradition of the elders, to pursue external purity. But it had nothing to do with internal 
realities. And so for the Pharisees that Jesus is condemning here in Matthew 15, clearly they have this external devotion. I'm sure they had very clean hands. You know, externally, their hands had been cleansed. But it was devoid of any internal reality. There was no true heart for God uh, that we read about in Hebrews 10. And so Jesus, using Isaiah uh, to prophesy about the Pharisees, says, in vain do they worship me. Their hands indeed may have been clean, but their hearts were defiled. And because their hearts were defiled, their worship was in vain. And Jesus goes on to explain more of this, uh, and, and that's what, that's what y'all read earlier, that just pointing out that these, these external acts, lip service, is not what pleases God. What pleases God is for those who draw near to him with true hearts, sincere hearts, genuine hearts that love God. And so all of us have dead hearts unless God intervenes. We need a new heart. And who can change a sinner's heart? The Holy Spirit alone. You don't have to turn, just think of the words that you know uh, from, from Ezekiel. Think of what's said in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh." So back to Hebrews 10, verse 22. Ezekiel 36 spoke of sprinkled clean water on you, um, clean you from all your uncleannesses. That's Ezekiel 36 language. And here in Hebrews 10, verse 22, you see the very same statements being used. Hebrews 10, 22 says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Through the blood of Jesus, we've been cleansed from sin. Through the blood of Jesus, our hearts have been made pure. And so we are able to draw near. And we draw near with confidence and we draw near with assurance. We draw near with sincere hearts. Real quick, verse 22 also says uh, something about assurance of faith. And here I just really want to make a very clear statement. A lot of, a lot of times there's this confusion even in the book of, well, in interpreting the book of Hebrews about can or can you not lose your salvation. And, 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 um, and I think the author is very clear that we cannot lose our salvation. And here you actually have him arguing for assurance of salvation. And so in this verse, he says that we're to draw near with assurance of faith. And it brings to mind for me uh, uh, an event in church history. There was this Roman Catholic theologian in the the Counter-Reformation, so like the Pope's theologian, his name was Cardinal Bellarmine, and he was asked, what is the greatest of all Protestant heresies. I mean, if we would think, well, we know what the Reformation was all about, we think Martin Luther, and I bet we'd all be quick to say, well, I bet his answer was justification by faith alone. That's probably the, from a, in a Roman Catholic mind, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is probably justification by faith. But do you know that actually this, this Roman Catholic theologian in the 16th century, he said the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance of salvation. And his basis for this, if you think about, think about why this would be his reasoning, so even reading through um, Sinclair Ferguson tracking this argument, he just said, if justification is not by faith alone, if faith needs to be completed by works, if Christ's work must somehow be repeated, then, then something always needs to be done. And if something always needs to be done, then there's never assurance. But if Christ has done everything, if justification is by grace without works, if it's received by faith, 
then full assurance indeed is available for every believer. It's possible for every believer. And so Cardinal Bellarmine, his view was, if you held to assurance of salvation, he said, if you teach this and those believe it, it will lead, it will, um, lead to license and antinomianism. He's saying if, if you believe that you can have assurance of salvation, people are just going to walk into all sorts of, of ungodliness. But think of what Hebrews actually teaches, the very opposite. Follow the argument of where we're going here in chapter 10. He says, uh, whole, uh, he says to uh, draw near with assurance of faith. And then look at what activity takes place by those who have assurance of faith. You start in verse 23. I mean, they, they continue. They hold fast their confession. They hold fast to it without wavering. Verse 24, they, they continue to be with other believers and they, they point other believers to Christ. They stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. They don't neglect obedience to God. They don't neglect meeting together. On and on we go in this where assurance of salvation leads to greater faithfulness. And so the author of Hebrews here is defending the reality that, that uh, assurance of salvation is for all believers. And, and if it's the greatest of all, you know, Protestant heresies, uh, you have misunderstood the gospel if you start to say that, that something that is so clear in the scriptures is um, error. So, so Cardinal Bellarmine was, was dead wrong in his assessment of assurance of salvation. So Hebrews 10.22 calls us to assurance of salvation. We've, we've got to finish here. Uh, we'll move into verse 23 and conclude with, with the content there. Uh, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast, the author says. Hold fast without wavering. Think of a song we often sing in, in in Christ, um, the song, Christ, the sure and steady anchor, here's part of one of the verses. In the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. I mean, more and more, I'm realizing the value of these words of, of holding fast, of not wavering. They, they point us to the importance of finishing well, the importance of persevering. And Hebrews 10 calls us to this perseverance. We are to persevere in, in what we, in holding fast to what we believe. Hold fast to the confession. I mean, Christians are confessing people. You know, our church has even benefited from some of the historic confessions where when we gather around communion, often we'll, we'll read from one or more of, of the historic confessions. But even in the scriptures, we, we see the early church had all sorts of early confessions that they would confess together. So even as short as Jesus is Lord, that was a confession in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Timothy 3, 16, talk about great indeed we confess the mystery of godliness. And then that confession that Paul is referencing has much to do with, with the person and work of Christ, that, that he came in the flesh and that, that, he, that he died that he rose again. I mean, these are the confessions that people confess together. And Hebrews 10 is saying, hold fast without wavering to, um, to, to the confession, you know, the confession of our hope. And we have good reason not to waver. Uh, Michael Kruger points this out. We have good reasons not to waver. What is the good reason not to waver? As you walk through verse 23, hold fast to the confession without wavering. Well, what is, what's the good reason here for not wavering? It's the end of the verse. For he who promised is faithful. We entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. Just as much as, as we're saying we hold fast, we also are mindful that it's God who will hold fast on to us. So again, we sing this as well, right? He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. 
And so we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. As this verse says, for he who promised is faithful. And so let us draw near. Let us hold fast to the confession. And then the section ends, and let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. This is the application that follows up all of this doctrine in Hebrews. The author didn't begin this letter by saying, go to church. That wasn't what he said, but we don't need to be scared of such a statement. Uh, Go to church is good advice, but but you're following the argument in Hebrews. This is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done. Christ is our only hope, and those who are in Christ have every privilege of, of being in Christ, and so we are to draw near, and so draw near, hold fast, Um, gather together with God's people. This is the application that that Hebrews says in light of what Christ has done. So don't be scared of of, uh, the ought here, what we ought do, that we ought to gather, that we need to gather, that we benefit from gathering. It is right. It is good for us to gather. Um, it um, It is needed and and it's also important, it, doesn't, it matters where you go. Go to church at a church that, that uh, teaches truth about Christ, just as you read throughout Hebrews about who Christ is and what he's done. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me attempt to sum this up by just, again, pointing back to the command that's given here. Let us draw near. What a privilege it is for us to have access to God. And we're mindful as gospel-believing Christians that our only basis, our only plea to approach God rightly is Christ alone. So if you're here this morning and you don't have a love for God, you have not trusted in Christ. You're, you're trusting in something else. You, uh, you have no plea before God. You have no right to even approach God. You have no access to God. It's for those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that they can approach God in a worthy manner. And so what a privilege it is for us as a church to be able to gather together, to worship in an acceptable way, to come before God in prayer because of Christ. So so we we praise God for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for what Christ has done for our good, for your glory. We're so thankful that we can come before you in prayer. We're so thankful that we can draw near to you. We can draw near and we should draw near. And so I pray that we would draw near to you with confidence and full assurance because of Christ. Uh, Be glorified as we go from here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.